Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. Today we're talking about Wii U rumors. It may be out of production, the new Nintendo system, the NX, might be coming soon, and people are already calling the Wii U the Dreamcast of this era. People are just going bananas about all these rumors. Rob, what do you what do you think about this? Have you have you been up on these uh, amazing Wii U rumors? I mean, I kind of know what everyone else knows, right? At this yeah. point, so it was the, the report came from uh, the the Nikkei newspaper, which, if memory serves, has actually been pretty reliable uh, when it comes to the Japanese game industry in the past. Yeah. Uh, and so the the rumor they reported was that. Uh, Nintendo is going to wind down Wii U production uh, before the year is out, which means the the timer has started for for the end of that system. Uh, except that while that was while that report was like widely circulated, uh, Nintendo came out and denied it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so N- Nintendo came out and said the report wasn't coming from uh, Nintendo, and said that. Uh, for the next quarter and thereafter as well, which I find an intriguingly ambiguous uh, turn of phrase, <laughs> yeah. uh, production is scheduled to continue. Uh, so at least on paper right now, Nintendo uh, are planning on continuing to produce the Wii U. But I think the reason this rumor is so widely reported is that we have, like, it certainly feels like we've kind of entered the death watch uh, period period for the Wii U, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. I think it does, and it's and it is the reason why we're hearing people, you know, sort of compare it to the Dreamcast. You know, a system that burned very brightly, but very very, you know, had a very short sort of lifespan. And so the Wii U only came out in 2012, I believe, fall of 2012. So it's not even been four years. Um, and you know, it's seen a lot of really truly great games, especially in the last couple of years. You know, Mario Maker. Incredible Splatoon, uh, one of my personal favorites, Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. You know, a lot of really, really great games on this system. And, you know, the numbers have never really been there uh, for the Wii U, especially compared to sort of Nintendo's runaway success with the Wii, which was, you know, uh, record-breaking in, in so many aspects in terms of how many houses it sort of got into. Uh, it, was, it was sort of, you know, saturating the market, basically, the, the game console market. So here we are. You know, three and a half years into the Wii U's lifespan, and we're hearing all of this stuff, and it's kind of like, okay, I guess it kind of makes sense. Um, but I, I kind of also don't really know what to make of it. Nintendo is so weird, you know, about about sort of their PR. They're so cagey about their plans. And this is the sort of thing where, you know, if the NX, the new system, was really, you know, about to come out in November, I feel like we'd have, we would have already kind of heard more about it at this point, or at least we should have, you know, quote unquote, in terms of how PR works in terms of console launches. So I'm not entirely sure what to make of it, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, I am, um, you know, nor, nor am I. And I also don't know what the corporate culture is in Japan versus the West. Like, yeah. you know, my understanding is in general, it's extremely bad form to like categorically deny a report when it's absolutely true, right? Like yeah. in general that doesn't happen. What you'll see is like much more like overtly weaselly language employed uh to avoid <laughs> actually directly contradicting a report that is true. Uh, and I think that's happened a few times where someone has basically like flat out lied uh in response to a reporter's questions. But in general that's that's kind of uh th- that's not very often done. But I don't know how Nintendo approaches things like that, especially for a company that uh, is sort of legendarily on message. Uh, yeah, typically. So I, I don't know what to make of that. Uh, but, you know, I think what, what really interests me is the, is the fact that <sighs> this seems like a really good console. Like, I've always, like, I have been on the verge of, <laughs> of buying a Wii U for like two years now, right? Yeah. Uh, and, it sort of seems like, you know, if, if you've sort of been away from Nintendo games for a while, like Wii U gives you pretty much everything you could possibly want, right? It's got a yeah. lot of the, the best games from not just this, like, generation of Nintendo, but, like, the last few uh, hardware generations of Nintendo you can, you can now get uh, on the Wii U. So I'm, I'm sort of amazed that this thing appears to be a, a complete disaster uh, for <laughs> Nintendo. And that it, it's it's very credible that they would be looking to exit the Wii U business as quickly as humanly possible. 
Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, and it is actually really sad. I have, you know, I'm famous on on Idle Thumbs even for saying that if you want the best spread of great games and you don't have, you know, the budget to buy every console, you get a decent PC in a Wii U and you will play most of the really great stuff, honestly. Like, the Wii U is the only console that I actually think you really, really need to kind of play everything that's awesome. And it's funny because, you know, Nintendo it certainly frustrates me at times. Uh, I'm not speaking as a as a <laughs> reviews editor at all at this point, um, but I am speaking just as somebody who really loves streaming games because they are so... You know, they're, they're really tough to sort of work with in terms of video and, and having, um, you know, like if I say streamed Zelda Twilight Princess, for example, and couldn't really put it on YouTube because, oh my God, you know, it's the Nintendo sort of partners program. That's a whole shit show in terms of how they, they don't want you to sort of monetize your videos if, if they're using their videos. Like they're behind the times in certain respects. But they still put out just so many really, really great games. Like, I can't tell you how much fun I've had with my Wii U, sort of honestly in comparison to my other consoles. And I enjoy my other consoles, you know, tremendously. I prefer to play things on a console to playing things on a PC, just as sort of a uh, personal preference. I've always been, you know, I grew up a console kid. I prefer a controller to a mouse and keyboard. I know that's like, a, makes me a, a dirty, you know, whatever, <laughs> <laughs> basically. Um, but the thing is, I, I, the reason why I'm playing those things on console is because, you know, I'm, I'm able to have that because it's my job to have, you know, to kind of have all the consoles. If I really wanted to, I could just play everything or almost everything on my PC and then, you know, sort of just use, have my TV time just be sort of Wii U time. Um, in my house, you know, we certainly use the Wii U probably more than anything else. You know, I've been playing a lot of Twilight Princess. Patricia, my girlfriend, loves Smash Brothers. Every time there's any update, she's there with her, you know, with Smash Brothers. We're both, you know, big, big Zelda fans, big Mario fans. We both went just bananas over Mario Maker, made a lot of levels and played just everything. Uh, so it's, it's really a shame. Like this console is, is our jam, you know, if, if that makes sense. It is our, you know, sort of, they're making the games that I really love to play. These sort of, colorful and weird and creative kinds of games with the kind of polish that comes with the budgets that Nintendo puts into things. So Now, I am curious. Uh, yeah. You say you use the Wii U kind of more than anything else. Uh, when you're watching, like, The Good Wife, for instance, on yeah. Amazon Prime, though, what are you watching that through? Oh, it's actually through our TV. We have a smart TV. Okay. Yeah, so... <laughs> because, I'm, I mean, I kind of feel like if this were purely about games, yeah. the Wii U would, would not have... It would not have been like the Wii U was sort of fed into a wood chipper, uh, right. this generation. But I, I think the, the problem that certainly I ran into when I was sort of contemplating what was the next system I want to buy is that, uh, in the last, you know, ever since the PS3 basically, um, my console is my primary entertainment device for the living room. Sure, um, sure. And the Wii U, like, the Wii U doesn't seem to offer as much on on that front, right? It's I I, I don't believe it can like play Blu-rays, correct? Um, I've I, never actually tried to be honest with you. I don't think it can, but I've I'm now that I'm thinking about it, I'm kind of like I I don't think so. Yeah, no, yeah. It, 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 it it can't. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I mean, it it can't do that. I don't know. It, I'm sure it has support for for all those things like Netflix and such, but yeah, it's yeah. it's just not as it, it, it's not sort of a one stop entertainment center the way these other consoles are. Sure. And sure. um, I I feel like it's interesting though because. You know, Microsoft, meanwhile, bet the farm on the idea that the Xbox couldn't just be a game console. It was going to become uh, sort of the the nexus of the living room, right? Everything yes. will be routed through the Xbox. And aside from a few valiant souls, I think, who really tried to make that work early <laughs> in the console's life cycle, yeah. uh, it just it did it didn't fill that role because unfortunately, there's limits to what you can actually do with a console. So it's it's interesting to see the the two outcomes here, which is Nintendo seems to have kind of taken the attitude that sort of the classic attitude for them. Uh, we're Nintendo. And we just, you know, we, we, we make great games that no one else has. Yeah. Uh, and they put out the Wii U. And then, Nint and then Microsoft is almost like, forget about the games. 
you can run cable through you, you can hook your you can hook your Xbox up to your cable subscription. And it's uh, like Star Trek because you can you know watch all your favorite shows by talking to your TV and it'll just play them. That was their other big sell was the Kinect. Yeah. Remember the Kinect being the you know the centerpiece for this system. And then a year after, it's kind of like yeah nobody's making anything for Kinect anymore. It's yeah yeah it is it is interesting and it seems like. Sony, meanwhile, just sort of went with this completely kind of great strategy where they, they went after, you know, they, they put a lot of focus on indies, which I think has helped them a lot this generation. And also sort of, you know, a lot of HD remakes of, of big games from their past. It feels like that's kind of working out for them at this point right now. And, uh, but I still don't know if that's the right strategy either. We're in a weird time for games, certainly. We're in a weird time not just for kinds of games, but also we're in a weird time for game platforms. I want to talk a little bit about like why sometimes cool things just just don't succeed. Uh, and you know, starting with starting with the Wii U, like what what do you think really turns people off that system? Like what what do you think chased people off? So, you know, my completely unqualified uh, opinion as not a financial analyst, um, I, I think there was a lot of confusion, obviously, over the name. You know, people thought, oh, Wii U. You know, a lot of the people who bought the Wii were not, you know, necessarily what you would call, you know, people who buy a ton of game consoles. So they thought, you know, okay, it's just the same thing and the same games and that sort of thing. Uh, that hurt them a little bit. I think people thought it was pretty weird because it was like, oh, it's a tablet, but it's also just a little box and it'll just play the same things. I just think there was a lot of sort of confusion at first over it. And Nintendo is also not, for as much as they rely on franchises and, you know, have these just incredible brands and, and all, you know, most recognizable characters in the world, or at least among the most recognizable characters, I don't know that they're great at marketing uh, sort of their their properties. I don't know that they're actually great at uh, getting those games in everybody's hands because of sort of the way they... They botched the launch of the Wii U a little bit. And they were also, God, they were, they were out the gate first for this console generation. Certainly they were out about a year before the, um, the PS4 and the Xbox One, but it also wasn't, you know, the amazingly powerful system that those other sort of consoles were. So I think there are a few things kind of going on that confused people and made people wary about buying another little box that, oh, it's just going to do the same thing. You know, a, f- a few of those things were kind of going on. And I think, uh, I think they also sort of missed the boat a little bit on streaming and how important yeah. it would be to, you know, to players and to gamers. And this is how we, you know, this is a huge chunk of how we do our jobs now is, is through video content. Well, and they aggressively copyright claim, correct? Oh my God. There have been videos where I've put up, they're not even done processing yet and they're already sort of copyright claimed. Uh, you know, on my personal channel, again, uh, just, you know, a Mario Maker level or something funny, something you just wanted to share on your YouTube channel, and it is claimed that second, literally that second sometimes. Um, and it's kind of like, you know what, dude? This is going to make people not want to stream your games, and that is how games are shown now, seriously. Like, that is how you get a lot of excitement uh, with an entire yeah. huge chunk of players. You know, people are watching YouTube. YouTube is is... Obviously rather large, <laughs> has a rather large audience, and gamers are very much on YouTube and they're on Twitch. And if you can't stream and you can't, uh, you know, have your videos there, you're really, really kind of screwing yourself a little bit in terms of uh, exposure. Uh, and, and it sucks and it's annoying because they make such good games. They make such good games that are great for streaming. You know, they're great for sort of showing off gameplay. They look good. They play well. Often they're really good games and people would be praising them. So it's really, it's really frustrating. And I, and I, I have the sense, and now this is completely, again, just a sense that I have that I, I imagine the folks in the, the sort of American arm of, uh, of Nintendo are probably more stream friendly and would probably be happier if the sort of Japanese parent company let them do a little bit more with video. That's my sense that it's not, you know, it's not everybody at Nintendo sort of saying this, but it is more of a, you know, the Eastern philosophy of like controlling every part of the message that, uh, that's kind of doing this. But for my money, that's, that's what annoys me the most <laughs> kind of. And, and what I think really does hurt them sort of, uh, especially at this point in gaming. Yeah. I, I think 
for me, I just, I've always, it's, it's such a different sort of console that there's a lot of things I've never fully warmed up to, like, yeah. uh, forget the giant tablet controller, uh, cause that was, <laughs> that one's odd, but I can sort of make my peace with it. Uh, yeah, but I just, yeah. I just hate Wii controllers. I hate oh, me them. Too. Oh, me too. Uh, and the yeah. fact that like the new Mario Kart came out and was amazing, but I was playing it with, with a few friends and I was like, wait, I gotta, I gotta play it using these crappy like pieces, you know, the, the, these weird little like pieces of plastic that I like, I, they, it's like a jump rope I'm holding in yep. my hands, uh, and, and playing this game that way. And I, and I feel like at this point, like he brought Nintendo a lot of success with the Wii. But there is something to be said. There's a reason the the sort of 360 controller, that rough outline, became the standard across games. Yes. And uh, for me, like, it's just kind of alien and weird to, to play a Wii U game. Uh, but it, but at the same time, like, there, there are so many games in that system uh, that I want to play. But at this point, like, once that whiff of failure is around the system, like, you know, would I get a Wii U now knowing that, it's probably going to be discontinued and for all I know support for it will be effectively shut off within a couple of years. That's, that's a, that's a harder sell. Yeah, that's rough. It's, but, it's really rough. I actually got a Dreamcast like the week it was, um, <laughs> or it was very, very close. I don't remember if it was exactly that week, but it was incredibly close to the time it was discontinued and it was, a, it was like a birthday gift uh, for me when I was 17. And, I had the greatest time of my life with my Dreamcast. It's still one of my favorite consoles of all time. And it was my very first non-Nintendo console that was actually mine. You know, I always played Sega Genesis when I was a little kid, but at my cousin's house or at my friend's house or whatever, um, my Dreamcast was a really big deal for me. And I, and I had, like I said, like the time of my life with it. Some of my favorite games ever were on the Dreamcast. And it just, it feels like that situation all over again. Like, oh man, why didn't, you know, you just want to yell at people like, you idiot, why didn't you get the Wii U? It was so great. Why can't we have nice things? You know, it's one of those kind of instincts a little bit um, Well, all over again. Do you think, you know, we've used the Dreamcast parallel a couple times, but, I, but I'm curious whether, like, where does that, where does that uh, analogy work for you and, and where does it fall short? Because I was never a Dreamcast kid, but it's been interesting mm-hmm. to me in the last, like, ten years um, Dreamcast has become sort of like the velvet underground yep. of, of game consoles. Like, oh no, it turns out everyone loved the Dreamcast. What are you talking about? That that console was awesome. Yeah. Uh, we were all Dreamcast owners back in the day. Um, obviously, nine ninety nine. Yes, obviously that that wasn't true. Uh, yeah. What what like why does the Dreamcast sort of have this sense of this this aura of like this glorious missed opportunity you know this 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 magical console that not enough people got and then why did not enough people get it oh man well again i was 17 at the time well not when it first came out but i was 17 when i got one so in 2001 yeah and it just to me feels like such a similar situation because it's such an example of like you know, first party Japanese system that happens to have so many wonderful, wonderful games that also kind of share a little bit of an aesthetic sense. Really colorful, really bright. You know, I'm thinking about Jet Grind Radio and Choo Choo Rocket and the Crazy Taxi games. You know, these were all some of my favorite games, really, at the time. And, and I think a lot of them actually hold up really well. Uh, and they, they were sort of new and they had this vibrant energy about them. They had this, Energy that was very much, uh, you know, turn of the millennium, late 90s, early 2000s, you know, basically before September 11th, there was this optimism and excitement, uh, that, that just sort of shone through and was a lot of fun and, you know, a little goofy, a little colorful, that sort of thing. And I see so much of that in a lot of Wii U games as well. Like I see a lot of that kind of energy in Mario Maker and Splatoon and Captain Toad and, even even something like Pikmin 3, which was also a really great game, um, it they all have this just really colorful, really sort of Japanese energy to them that's a lot of fun. It's very youthful. Uh, it doesn't appeal to everyone, certainly, but I, I see a lot of that in these games. And actually, when I first played Splatoon, I remarked that, like, okay, gameplay-wise, not entirely, but aesthetically, this really feels like playing Jet Grind Radio to me. Like, this just goofy, you're you're spraying ink or paint or whatever everywhere. Mm-hmm. You're running around, the, the actual sense of momentum feels similar. Uh, you know, Jet Grind Radio wasn't a shooter, but they have that, they they certainly both carry a vibe. Uh, and so I, I see a lot of that. 
Um, and obviously the parallel of, of a system that, you know, shone so brightly with so many wonderful games that didn't do well. <laughs> you know, the sort of on paper aspect, uh, fits as well. Um, but although certainly there are major differences, clearly. You know, the, the Wii U was being released in, in a very different world. And, you know, I don't think Nintendo kind of screwed up their last system the way uh, Sega kind of screwed up the Saturn, um, yeah. which, you know, really kind of was the death knell for the Dreamcast. The Dreamcast didn't necessarily kind of do anything wrong. It was more, you know, Sega didn't do the greatest job with its business uh, in terms of consoles. So, you know, it's it's not a one-to-one, but yeah. it does feel like there's a few things here that are like, yeah, I, I can see that. I can feel that same energy when I'm playing a lot of these games. I mean, you know, I think for me, I'm like what always what always saddens me a little bit when I see a when I see a, a console or a hardware line kind of disappear yeah. uh, is that a lot of times, a lot of times, I'm surprised the degree to which the ideas die with the product. Yeah, because you know it, it it's just it's just sort of seen as we tried it this way. It was yeah. rejected in the marketplace. We're not going to try it that way again. And that, like, there's obviously reasons people would, would draw those conclusions, but at the same time, um, frequently there's, there's like, as you said with the Dreamcast, right? The, the, aside from, I think there were some, I think there were some build quality issues with, with early Dreamcasts, uh, certainly, but. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's correct. Yeah. But setting that aside, Sega had not prepared the ground well for for their new console. Um yeah. and the Dreamcast I think one of the reasons it was cool is it was kind of ahead of its time uh in in some respects. Uh yes. it, it sort of boasted a lot of features that uh don't make it all that different a beast from from later consoles, but the the whole thing is sort of viewed as the product itself was faulty. And not the way the rollout was handled, not the timing, not the messaging around it, sure. right? Yeah. And and so I, I think, you know, what's what's always a little depressing about uh, the the sort of failures of a failures of a hardware line is that a lot of times what ends up carrying the day is conservative, right? It's yeah. it's it's the same thing you had before, but more so. Yeah. And that that reliability is comforting. But it always leaves you with the sense of, well, where else could this all have gone? Which is really funny because people accuse Nintendo of doing that all the time. <laughs> of just being, you know, more of the same, more Mario, more Zelda, more Mario Kart, more Smash Brothers, more, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which I don't think is fair, to be honest, because no. they do actually bring out uh, really interesting and weird things. Like Mario Maker is an interesting and weird thing that happens to Star Mario, but it's not, you know, the same same old shit. And you know, something like Super Mario 3D World is a brilliantly designed platformer. It's not it's not just sort of same old shit. It's you know, yes, the characters are the same, but they they just sort of use the same wrappings over and over again. Yes. There's a lot of new gameplay ideas. So I yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no, I mean <laughs> clearly a Nintendo fan here speaking. <laughs> no, I think that's that's an important point though, is, yeah. is that Nintendo isn't doing the EA Sports model where it's right. like, well, here's your here's your roster update. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We've we've upgraded Yoshi's speed, but his reflexes are down a little bit, right. uh, so he's so he's an 85. Uh, <laughs> but instead, they're they're just uh, they're pretty savvy about it, right? Like yeah. people know what a Mario game is, they know what a Metroid game is, and that allows you the freedom to maybe experiment with what that actually means, right? Yes. I mean, this is how you end up with this sort of weird singular. Products like you know the Metroid Prime. Yes, yes, which is pretty fucking cool. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I mean that said, I'm not sure. In the end, I'm not sure the 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 Wii U's ideas were necessarily that good, right? There, it was an attempt to sort of preserve what made the the Wii unique. Yeah, but that idea had kind of run its course by the time the Wii U came out. So that, you know, that's, that's a hard sell right, right out of the gate. And then the fact that your, your, your big, your big killer feature is this, is this weird tablet, uh, controller that you hold in your lap while you play. Uh, it was, it was kind of, it was kind of a solution, uh, in search of a problem. Yeah. Um, so, 
I, I think in this case, I think what I'll be missing the most is the idea that uh, Nintendo had created a platform that was all about giving you access not to not just to what Nintendo has out right now, but pretty much everything awesome that Nintendo's ever done in the last like fifteen twenty years. Yes, that is that is such a huge part of it, and the fact that they also. You know, again, speaking as a super mega Zelda fan here, but the fact that they went back and did, you know, really nice sort of prettied up HD versions of some of those really beloved games was also big for me um, and, and something I was really excited about. And I and I am a virtual console junkie. You know, I God, yeah. I just play everything. I play all my beloved Donkey Kong Country games as well um, <laughs> on the system as well, of course, along with. I, I, I'm sorry, but if we're talking about the Wii U, I have to give a plug to the secret best Wii U game, which is Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. And nobody ever takes me seriously when I say it, but <laughs> I'll keep, I'm going to keep banging that Donkey Konga drum. Did you, uh, just saying. before we, before we let this drop, yes. um, yeah. did you play Zombie U? You know, I actually didn't. I didn't have a Wii U until, oh um, Danielle. Danielle. I know, I know, it was, I've heard it's really great. Oh my god, it's the best. It's it's literally the best thing. Like it was so good, I damn near bought the the Wii U just on on the basis of that as well. And if I had more HDMI ports, I, I probably would have. Uh, yeah. But I'm in that horrible place where I'm like, well, I don't know if I don't know if I'm hooking anything else up to that uh to that <laughs> yeah. TV. But uh no, you should you should seriously check it out. It came out for other platforms, but it was sort of designed around the Wii U. Uh, yeah. So I would I would recommend playing it there. Uh, but also just really unusual game to find on a Nintendo system period. Yes, um, yes. It's 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 such a it's such a fascinating game. Uh, Matthew Wise uh wrote a wrote a piece on it uh on his blog uh Outside Your Heaven, I want to say. Oh yeah. Uh describing sort of the way that game's core can see it's sort of a roguelike zombie game uh set in this in this post zombie apocalypse London. Uh, that's just, that's utterly unforgettable, uh, and, and evocative. It's, it's, it's very stalker-esque. Uh, oh, so nice. I, I, I highly recommend it. And, uh, before, b- before we sort of put the, the Wii U on its ice flow <laughs> yeah. and send it drifting out to sea, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe we should, I, I recommend you, you, you give that game a shot and, and maybe I'll pick up a Wii U before, before it, before it heads off. Okay. That, that sounds like a really good idea. And one last uh, one last note in terms of uh, really great horror games on the Wii U. The Fatal Frame game for the Wii U is also fantastic, and used the Wii U gamepad in an actually uh, decent and interesting way. You're sort of using it as an actual camera, almost ARG style. Very very cool stuff. And now I will again I will stop uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will stop beating the drum as we go right into weekend correspondence. So I'll read this first letter. This one comes from Rick Hamilton, a.k.a. Zamboni Butt. What an awesome name. Oh, okay. Rick writes, Hello, Rob and Danielle. Been loving the references in Idle Weekend to Rob's freelance career as a game reviewer and Danielle's day job as reviews editor at Zam.com, and I would love to hear more from both of you about these interesting but seemingly low-paying careers. In last week's podcast, there was discussion that touched on the mini-scandal in games journalism regarding cronyism, and would love to hear more from both of you about that since the two of you probably have a deeper understanding of the issues uh, than those of us outside the industry. Uh, also, Danielle mentioned she likes streaming some games from time to time, wondering if this is part of the move away from the written word towards those ubiquitous Let's Play YouTube and Twitch videos. And finally, does Rob know how much he sounds like David Letterman? <laughs> uh, loving Idol Weekend, Rick Hamilton. I find that wow. last that last observation <laughs> intriguing because uh, Mr. <laughs> Letterman and I are both Hoosiers. Uh, as oh. a matter of fact. And so I am kind of wondering if, if Rick's ear is picking up something that is completely invisible to me. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, like, Letterman and I are from very different parts of the state, but we, we are sure. both from Indiana. So I am, I am kind of like intrigued now by this, by this idea that there is, there is a Hoosier accent, uh, <laughs> that I have, that I've just never really been able to pick up on. Oh man, that would actually be really cool. It's that that Indiana X factor. I like that. Um, in terms of uh, sort of Rick's other concerns here, um, wow. So game journalism can be a very low paying career. It can also be a totally okay paying career. It really just sort of depends where you work and how lucky you are. I have been blessed 
to, you know, have steady work. Uh, and Rob, you, you have been a freelancer for a long time. So you had a totally different experience than me in terms of that. Uh, but it, it, it's not generally known as a well-paying career. You're never going to get rich, uh, doing this. That's certainly true. And that's, uh, maybe a misconception that, uh, leads to some of that, that cronyism, uh, <laughs> or those, uh, sort of, accusations of cronyism that we all we're all you know sort of rich and and hanging out and we're all we're all sort of hipsters who have you know degrees in critical studies and you know this is all this is what we do for fun kind of thing um whereas you know most people who do this full-time are the opposite of rich and uh you know kind of do this because we really love games or we really love writing about games or we really love what it is to kind of to do this and to interact on this level with uh, this many games and this many game makers. At least for me, that's sort of the the appeal of the job. And this is coming from somebody who had a very incredibly different career before I did this. Um, it's uh, legitimately rewarding and fun to do this uh, the way I do it anyway, because I get to you know really talk to a lot of very interesting people all the time and sort of uh, hang out with creative people and see what they do. Uh, in terms of the sort of accusations about cronyism, oh my god. <laughs> Every time, so, you know, just coming back from GDC, uh, you know, we're all, you don't really get into games unless you really like games, and it shouldn't come as a shock that sometimes you make friendships with people inside the industry where you share passions with people. Um, and sometimes people date one another, you know, who have the same passion, and that's a normal and okay thing, and you know, it, it shouldn't come across as cronyism so much as this is pretty normal in any industry, at least uh, in a lot of industries. People will make human friendships and human relationships. And the only thing you need to be careful about when you're a journalist is to just, you know, disclose it if you have a relationship with someone. Just sort of mind your, I, I hate to say this, um, mind your ethics, I guess, you know, just just cover your butt you know if you know somebody really well if you're friends with somebody and you're covering something they do you have an ethical responsibility to disclose that in general and i don't know i don't know that it needs to be more complicated than that personally to an extent people in the industry kind of help that along because our first impulse is to be self-loathing and right. skeptical of ourselves <laughs> and examine examine what we do, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad impulse, but it does mean you're sometimes uh, susceptible to concern trolling, right? Yeah. And I remember um, like two years ago, like, you know, I just about like had an aneurysm when <laughs> PC Gamer published a statement about one of their editors and his relationship uh, yeah. with someone who worked at uh, Ubisoft. Ubisoft. Uh, I think Ubisoft PR, but what, what bothered me about that was, you know, that editor, uh, hadn't written anything about, he hadn't written any right. like editorial content, uh, except for some news posts about, about Ubisoft games. Uh, but it was, it was a complete non-issue. He, he had sort of siloed himself off from, from Ubisoft coverage that of the sort that requires an opinion. Right. Right. Um, and also the the relationship was was well known and 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 long term like they they'd gotten together uh, a long time before she she started working at Ubisoft and right. what drove me crazy about that was acknowledging the issue i felt had given had had all, it was almost the same as saying it had validity right uh yeah. and i did not feel that the sort of behavior of ferreting through people's personal lives to figure out who their connections were and what the relationships were to other people in the industry. I didn't feel that was something that should be commented on or, or recognized. Uh, and that, and that kind of bothered me because I, I think, you know, when I saw something like that happen, uh, you know, as a freelancer at that point, I also sort of feel like, well, now I know the extent to which that outlet would have my back. Right. Um, if, if, if something got, if something got a little hectic. Uh, and I think that was one of the discouraging things watching sort of that, that summer turn into fall, uh, unfold was the sense that the first impulse was to try and placate, uh, rather than sort of really examine what the motivations were for, uh, for those accusations. So here's what does concern me. And I, I don't think it's cronyism. 
Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think sometimes we are ill-served by the fact that a lot of people in this on this side of the industry covering games um, have a reflexive admiration for people who make games. That's a good point. That yeah. I think can be unhealthy, and sometimes I worry that uh, there's a little too much emphasis placed on sort of sometimes it feels like critics are working harder to get validation from from game makers than they are at pursuing their craft as critics if that makes sense right it does it does you, you can sort of see that with the way like critics will to an extent it's useful to sort of learn the vocabulary of of game designers uh, but to another extent um you don't approach like you're approaching the the game from an outsider's perspective, from the audience's perspective. So why are why you know why is there this constant effort to sort of see the game from the developer's point of view, right? <laughs> and and so I think that's that's something that I think is maybe a little more of of concern to me because I think at that point what a lot of people who cover the industry end up doing is sort of internalizing a lot of the prejudices and concerns and values of the game industry. And I'm not sure that's healthy. That's not yeah. cronyism, but I think sort of, you know, if you actually wanted a, a, a real issue that, that people should, should care about when it comes to sort of media coverage, coverage of, of, of an industry, I think that's, that's the point. That's the thing I point to, right? That's the thing that sometimes makes me uncomfortable. Uh, but strangely, that's strangely that that's the thing that never seems to come up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not even slightly, because I think the portion of the audience that gets very upset about these things has similar attitudes, perhaps, towards game creators, or especially sort of celebrity game creators, or at least some celebrity game creators. I would say um, I would push back the tiniest bit, uh, at least on sort of the, uh, the idea that, uh, you know, Knowing all the lingo and sort of knowing the insider stuff uh, doesn't help with criticism because I, I I personally actually enjoy games criticism more after sort of knowing a little bit more about game development and, and doing a little bit of hobbyist stuff on my own. I, I've found that it actually helps to keep me passionate about game criticism, sort of. Uh, I guess you could take it either way. It could make you, you know, knowing how the sausage is made could could make you sort of a little bit more uh, wary of things and, and sort of see flaws more, or it can make you feel the way I feel, which is, oh my God, it's a miracle. These things are miracles when they work and they come together. And it makes me sort of uh, happy and excited. And, and hopefully uh, that I put that sort of happiness and excitement into my work and into my criticism and that it shows, um, which also sort of goes to, there were a lot of points in this email, but it, that also goes to the point of uh, sort of asking about, uh, whether or not streaming is, is, you know, sort of something I'm doing, uh, or, or something that we're all kind of doing to move towards video content as opposed to writing content. And I, I, I really like the idea that we can do both and that we can kind of support both. I really do enjoy doing both. And I, and I like to think that sort of my enthusiasm for games and my, and my sort of goofiness and my general personality, uh, you know, is very much suited towards streaming and, and sort of having fun in the moment and that I can be more reflexive and more critical and more, um, I guess more thoughtful yeah. <laughs> when I, when I have the time to step away and write a review. So I think we can have both, uh, Zamboni yeah. butt. <laughs> yeah. I, I just want to, I want to say like, I don't think, I, I don't think there's anything bad about sort of learning the l learning about game design right sure, or sure. or employing that terminology even uh, and I, sometimes i do find it incredibly useful that there are there are terms and concepts that exist in you know in, in game studies in, in game design that yeah. can really help you sort of understand and process an experience you've had um i i, I totally I, I totally agree with that and i don't want to seem like i was i was sure. down on that practice i just i get wary sometimes of um game criticism that is that sometimes feels to me like it's 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 approaching the game from the creator side maybe a little more than sure, as sure. uh you know as a dispassionate audience member i think is is sort of what i was trying to get at there 
but yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. On to our next email. Uh, hello, Danielle and Rob. I was recently playing this War of Mine. I've been wanting to play this game since it came out, but couldn't until now. I was anxious to get it started and was relieved when I stopped. Uh, I had been reading all the bios of my three characters and what their expectations of me as this omnipresent and omniscient, but not omnipotent player uh, were, and I just felt overwhelmed. At one point, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to fully meet those expectations, and an unbearable anxiety shrouded my experience. I kept playing a little bit more, but it was just too much responsibility. I told them I had to play with other characters. It wasn't them, it was me, and proceeded to quit the game and uninstall it. I moved on to other games and been happy with that decision. Has something like this happened to you on other games? Gus. Oh, man. Uh, yes. And very specifically, it, the... The note about it sort of being like unfriending somebody on Facebook is exactly what made me think of this. Uh, but the tiniest shark, I actually, I think I mentioned this game last week in passing, but uh, Red Shirt, uh, which is basically a, a sort of desktop simulator game where you're playing as sort of like a red shirt ensign in a, a Star yeah. Trek-ish universe and you're making friends with people and you're making social connections and you're doing social climbing and you're dating people. I have so, when I was playing that game, I was actually playing it during a really, really uh, difficult period of my life when I was sleeping on friends' couches because I had broken up with a really, really serious long-term partner, my fiancé, and uh, <laughs> I was playing this game, and I was just, like, so emotionally distraught when I broke up with someone in the game. I'm just like, oh, my God, I can't do this. You know, I really was very, very moved by sort of the relationships I had with these little people and sort of keeping up with with my you know boyfriends and girlfriends in the game, and I had to send them pictures and texts and, and keep up with them. And I was just like, God, this is such hard work. Oh my God, you know, I, I got really into it, and uh, I didn't stop playing the game because of it. So I guess it's not a one to one, but it, it was really distressing at times. Sort of the relationships I was having with these little imaginary alien people. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So the game that uh, comes to mind uh, with 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 this with this email is a game that I can never remember the name of it. Uh, every like every time it comes up, it's a game that made a huge impression on me, and I enjoy it very much. Uh, I just can never remember what it is actually called. Uh, and we just had to pause for about ten minutes while we uh, while uh, while we tried to brainstorm what the actual name was, and then eventually I started like just spamming. Google term, like spamming Google uh, with vague word association until it came up, uh, State of Decay. Yeah. Which is a zombie survival game that is really unusual because it's really about like managing this camp full of survivors. So it's, it's a very, this war of mine, actually. Uh, yeah. All your survivors have their own backstory. Um, they are characters in their own right. They have relationships with each other and have uh, interactions that you put them near each other and they'll have conversations. Um, and the thing is, death is permanent. You are not one character. You are basically the, the camp of survivors. You just choose who you inhabit uh, at any given time. But if someone goes down on a mission or if your character gets killed, uh, that's it. They're gone. Uh, and, and you, you have to move on with the, with the other survivors. Um, and what I could not handle was the responsibility for keeping these guys alive. Yeah. Uh, I got attached <laughs> to these characters. Like I remember two things happened in short order that completely derailed me playing that game. One, um, I started a session. I've been delaying this story quest for for ages. Uh, in the in the intro to that game, a character is wounded and needs medicine, and you need to go get a doctor to to have this character treated. And I just kept putting it off because there were more pressing needs. We needed food. We needed you know ammunition. We needed weapons. Uh, rescued a few other survivors. And then one day I log in and I start going down into town to scavenge like you know like you do. <laughs> And then I get the message that, like, Ed has died. And I was like, oh, no. whoa, wait a second. What do you mean Ed is dead? Like, there's no timer. There's no, like, where was the warning? you got to give me notice that, like, Ed's about to go down. But no, like, in this game, 
uh, things sort of happen dynamically around the camp and w- with some of these characters. And if you don't deal with a problem, uh, the problem escalates and something bad happens. And yeah. I was like, oh, God, wait. So basically now every time, now, be, now it went from being sort of an open world zombie survival game to being this horrible like resource management game where I was the resource, where my attention uh, was the resource. What was I doing at one minute, at one moment, uh, and who was I leaving to die uh, by doing that? So that was the one thing. And then shortly after that, my main character uh, that I started with the, ga- the game with, and is sort of your, your your basic good, decent zombie you know survival leader, um, just died in the dumbest possible way. <laughs> Um, I was just out there. I was literally, I was literally like 50 feet outside the wire and I just whiffed on this, um, sort of, I guess it's like the, the equivalent of the hunter. It's a, it's a fast pouncing zombie. I just whiffed on my shot. Uh, the thing closed the distance. Um, I knocked it down and was like winding up to deliver the follow up blow and exhausted myself and my character got tired for like a crucial second. I couldn't move. And the zombie gets up, pounces, and that's it. Uh, dude is dead, like, instantly. Oh, man. And I was like, <laughs> I can't. Like, I, I tried to go on, but my my guy was dead. Like, it, to me, the game was over. Like, I died. Uh, and I just couldn't, I could not handle that. And I've tried to go back since then, and it's completely changed my relationship with the game. I'm just sort of, like, in a panic over, you know, who I'm going to let down and, and how things are going to get messed up. So... That's yeah, I've totally been there. Um this war of mine I think was I found that a little easier because this war of mine is so overdone and so doom and gloom. Yeah. That yeah. I, I kinda took the attitude that like, you know, these refugees were kind of doomed. Uh we <laughs> yeah. do my best, but you know everything sucks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. This next email comes from Garrick. Hey Robin Danielle, loving the podcast. You've been talking a bit about trashy shows you've enjoyed recently, which has brought to mind my experiences that shows that start off unevenly at best and then improve, often drastically, in later seasons. In particular, I'm thinking of, please forgive me, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., The 100, and Defiance, which all had pretty rough starts, and yet which, I think, all got a lot better as they moved into their second seasons. Though I understand it intellectually, it kind of saddens me that people get put off of these shows by their uneven starts since they improve so much over time. But am I maybe just starved for sci-fi television? What if I'm actually only liking these shows later seasons because of Stockholm Syndrome? What are your thoughts and experiences regarding shows that start off rough and improve later in their runs, and how critics and fans in the overall media discourse relates to them? I have so many feelings about this, Garrick. This this topic just feels so oh, dear, near and dear to my heart. So I am also, you know, a, just a giant massive sci-fi nerd like my favorite things in life are sci-fi i wish i could be a starfleet captain that's still what i would put on you know if anybody asks me what i want to be when i grow up it's still going to be that forever when i'm 65 it'll still be that so i actually think every modern star trek has a an atrocious first season you know next generation has a terrible first season voyager has maybe the worst first season out of any of them deep space nine has a terrible first season and all of those shows really do get good. Even Voyager, which I will I will fight people to the death, um, was a much better show than anybody remembers it as. I recently watched through every modern Trek in order, Next Generation, DS9, and Voyager. And, you know, that show has some problems, but it also has, like, kind of the best women characters in the entire series and has some great episodes. So, there. Um, but, yeah. Also, my favorite, uh, my favorite show of all time, and nothing has ever come close to it, Farscape, has just a trash fire pile of dog shit of a first season. Like, things do actually get better sort of as the first season goes on. It starts to sort of show the promise of PK what it's going to be. PK Tech Girl is right when that is the yep. moment that show begins to turn the corner. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's not super early on. It's like around the midpoint of the first season. Yeah, and there's still far. some bullshit after that. But, you know... It, I really just genuinely think sci-fi shows take a little while sometimes, at least in sort of all these examples, to sort of find their rhythm a little bit. Sci-fi is a little weird, obviously. Uh, things happen in these worlds that don't happen kind of in the real world, and I think that presents some challenges. It also comes with a little bit of baggage. You know, sci-fi, because it's never... 
until something like Battlestar Galactica, and I, I suppose the original Star Trek in the 60s um, is a counterexample of this, but in general, at least, you know, sort of since the 80s, sci-fi has been saddled with having to kind of do fan service for sci-fi fans and kind of be a little goofy and be a little uh, fan service-y in, in a lot of ways. And I think uh, writers do get bogged down in that a little bit, especially with these genres. Um, we're seeing a, a turn away from that, I think, in, you know, since the 2000s, since sort of Battlestar Galactica and, you know, I think Farscape got away from this as well, but, you know, it was certainly campy at times, even, even once it got really good. Um, well, Farscape so, went off in an entire, di- like, Farscape oh, yeah. kind of canned its original idea. Oh, it totally did. And yeah. became this weird and, and beautiful, like, meta sci-fi show. Like, yeah. it's, it's very much following the, um, almost like the scream model, right? Where, like, John totally. Crichton has been shot into the sci-fi universe, except he's familiar with all of sci-fi's conventions. Exactly. Uh, and that ends up making it, uh, really delicious watching this, like, nerdy child of pop culture. Yes. Uh, sort of na- and and the weird thing is that's become way overdone now. Yeah, but at the has. time it was utterly in the nineties. This was brand new. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think you you make a good point there where a lot of these shows sort of get I think hung up on the baggage of of sci-fi and trying to do uh, the things that like they end up servicing i think the worst instincts of yes. sci-fi fandom yeah. which is why they all spend so much time on world building and mm-hmm. establishing a setting because i sometimes feel like these things are sort of designed well we have to like we we have to answer all the whys for an audience Right. That cares about this stuff because they, because uh, obviously they care. Otherwise, they wouldn't have Starfleet ship manuals and, and Star Wars <laughs> technical manuals and stuff like that. Yeah. So we have to, we we have to spend an entire season laying out the rules for this universe and creating all these rich characters. And then, only then, once we set the stage, can our beautiful space opera unfold. <laughs> and I think, like Battlestar was much smarter about it. Yeah. Because Battlestar. Uh, basically doesn't explain much of anything until the shits hit the fan, right? Like, really, it's only later in the first season that they begin to really break down the rules of the universe. But yeah. the, the, the opening, the opening episodes, the, the miniseries that established the, the show was basically, okay, Cylons can take over computers. We used to fight them. Now they've been, they've been gone for like 20 years. Oh no, they're back and it's the end of the world. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, it's very, you know, in, in medias race. Uh, so I, I think that's the, the, the model to take, but I think a lot of sci-fi shows end up trying to sort of explain all the, all the background that you, you need to know, thinking you need to know it. And the, the answer is, you know, really you don't. I agree. And, and I think the expanse does this fairly well as well, even though the whole first season feels a little bit like set up for, the future, they at least, it at least feels, you know, like you said, in medias res and actually feels like stuff is happening. Even if you don't completely understand the whole universe, you're getting a sense of what's going on right away. And it's framed, you know, partially as a mystery, which always helps. Yeah. I think it helps when sci-fi, you know, because sci-fi could be literally anything. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, there's certain genre conventions, certainly, but they don't have to apply. I think it, it does help to sort of rely a tiny bit on other genres to establish things and, Mystery is one of those things, and action in Battlestar certainly helped it as well. So, but yeah. I do think there's also a tendency to stick around with shows too long, give them too much time, um, yeah. and because I, I, I think there's so many shows now that have established this model of just give it time, it'll turn good. That now a lot of us, like on Netflix especially, sort of approach shows with this this mindset that well. You just slog, you just slog through the first <laughs> X number of episodes and then right. the real show begins. And uh, I had this moment of clarity, uh, a couple weeks ago when Gotham came back from its mid-season hiatus. Sure. And I just over the winter break while I was sort of laid up and everything, I had just watched, uh, all of the Flash season one. I had watched oh, all right. of Arrow season three. <laughs> uh, I was watching Agent Carter. I was, I was all, I was up to my eyeballs in superhero stuff. <laughs> And so Gotham comes back on and I realize I just hate the show. 
Like I just, <laughs> I just hate it. And we're we're midway through the second season. Whatever it's going to be, it is. It's not figuring anything out. It's just garbage. And if you like, it sometimes helps to watch like good TV. And then sort of juxtapose that with the series you're trying to get into. And like, you know, how's the storytelling? How's the acting? What's the worldview being, you know, be, being disseminated through this, through this piece of entertainment? And if minute to minute those things are garbage or repulsive <laughs> or unpleasant, who really cares? Do you really, like, do you really care if the show gets good or decent? If for half or a quarter of its life, it's going to just be repugnant garbage. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that, that, that for me is, is like, it was, it was a refreshing moment when I realized I just, I just actually hated that show and just yeah. like deleted it from my DVR, canceled all future <laughs> recordings. And like, I now just, I don't care. Uh, and that is, that is such a wonderful feeling to, to cut a mediocre piece of entertainment out of your life. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. It's very cleansing. You've talked about games you have soft spots for, but are there any games that you've become obsessed with beyond the boundaries of your role as journalists? I realize as games journalists, you already have a deep relationship with games, but I'm curious as to whether you've crossed the line from writing about games into modding or even simple backseat redesign of games. It seems journalists are often careful to avoid becoming the kinds of superfans that many other consumers of games and media are. At which point do you feel the professional need to stop your fandom? Is it a case of you've you've seen behind the curtain enough that you can't express yourself in the ways that many fans do, or is it simply lack of time? Regards, Andrew Duell. Wow. Um, I was thinking about this letter, and I was thinking I, I sort of have the opposite uh, issue, and not with games, but with you know, again, we're talking about sci-fi and Star Trek and nerdy media. Sort of uh, the first video I ever edited, and I got my master's degree in, in video production and video editing, uh, so the, it's kind of what I do and what I think I do pretty well. The first video I ever made in my life was a Star Trek fan video, and I, I made several of these, you know, when I was not even, I want to say I was a teenager, I was in college, I was I was a grown woman when I was doing this. Um, <laughs> so you could say I, I like have been a super fan of things uh, at times in my life, and I, I will admit to <clears throat> reading fan fiction uh, from Star Trek and these sorts of things. So I've been a super fan before. So I kind of know, I think, uh, what, what being a super fan is. And I would say uh, it's completely lack of time <laughs> that would keep me from doing those things again because they were fun. And I really enjoyed sort of being part of a community of fans uh, for something or, you know, just sort of diving completely into something and sort of enjoying the sort of creative end. Uh, of doing it. Nowadays, I, I sort of satisfy my creative, um, instincts by making little, little itty bitty tiny games and, and, you know, that sort of thing, but they're all completely my own thing. I don't do any modding or, or anything like that. I wouldn't be opposed to it, uh, cause I don't think there's actually a professional line to be crossed. If you, if you really like something and you're, you're sort of playing around with something and you're, you're not obviously not using it for profit or, or doing anything improper, I don't think it's a problem to be a fan, uh, as long as you can, you know, sort of do your job, do it well, and sort of abide by whatever ethical policy you have to for whatever site you're working for. So, yeah, it's it's lack of time <laughs> at this point. Uh, I think I definitely tend to be a little skeptical of enthusiasm when it's coming from inside the house. Uh, <laughs> sure. No, it's... I sometimes worry, like, if I, if I really like a game almost beyond, uh, almost beyond my, my, if I have a regard for a game that almost sort of goes beyond, uh, like, the regard I have for it as a critic, right? So, like, an example is, uh, a real-time strategy game from years ago, which just, just disappeared from Steam, by the way, and all other digital stores called Ruse, uh, Ooh. from, from Eugen Systems, uh, who made the excellent war game series. I really loved Ruse. It was an unusual RTS. Uh, it was really exciting at a time when I felt like a lot of RTS games were, were kind of dull and it was either kind of StarCraft 2 or nothing. Uh, yeah. and Ruse was this breath of fresh air into that environment. Okay, great. But then I really wanted Ruse to succeed. And <laughs> so then, like, and it's not like I was publishing articles on it or trying to like create them because because there, there's nothing you can do as a critic. You don't have, you, even with the little pulpit that you've got, you can't 
you are not going to start the the movement to make a game a, a huge success. Right. But right. I did sort of start to get a little self-conscious on three moves ahead and um, various strategy columns I, w- I was writing at the time, the way ruse kept coming up, right? Like, sure. any question, you know, well, what, what do you think about this this other RTS? I'm like, well, have you played ruse? <laughs> and once that starts happening, I, I just tend to I, I tend to get a little suspicious of myself and, and think, well, you should you probably need to you probably need to rein it back, uh, both because it's probably a little monotonous to, to listen to, but also I I just worry at a certain point that people are going to think I'm speaking as I'm trying to speak as some sort of like authoritative critic, right? Like, Oh no, this game is actually just, it's it's just fantastic and you absolutely need to play it versus someone who likes an idiosyncratic, but flawed game, but just really loves the hell out of it. And cause that's the guy that's speaking, right? It's this, it's this thing where I just want, I just want to give it to you and like show you like, Hey, check this out. But I don't want people to get that, that part of me confused with, you know, the guy who's sort of sitting back and dispassionately trying to assess games. That's not a dispassionate assessment. I genuinely want you to love this game as much as I do. Uh, and so that, yeah. that is sometimes a thing that, that I get hung up on. Yeah. I, I think that's fair. I, I can certainly be accused of being, uh, extremely enthusiastic about certain things and banging a, a particular drum, Donkey Kong, uh, often. So I, I do actually think that's fair. Um, with that, I think it's time for our weekend projects. Rob, is there something you're reading or watching, listening to that is just amazing right now and you want to share it with us? Uh, so I just finished a game by Michael Caine. Uh, not a game, sorry. I just sure. finished a book by Michael Caine, uh, not the actor, but a sports writer, <laughs> called Game Boys, uh, which Ooh. is about the rivalry between two Counter-Strike teams back in 2006 uh, complexity and team 3D. Uh, but it's just interesting to read right now because it was written at this time where, um, it felt like esports were about to break through into the mainstream. Yeah. And so the entire book has this, this aura of like, oh man, like at the start of this book, they're this underground thing. And by the end of it, they're about to get broadcast on television and like esports have completely arrived. And that's not remotely what happened. Uh, <laughs> like shortly after that book came out, the bottom completely dropped out of, of esports in North America at that moment. Uh, Counter-Strike kind of entered a real downturn that for a while looked almost terminal. But it's really interesting to read this book now in 2016 because for one thing, uh, Counter-Strike Global Offensive is, is, is closer at least to the game that they were playing back then, uh, Counter-Strike 1.6. But also it's interesting seeing all the parallels uh, that exist between that moment where everyone's trying to figure out how to position themselves to take advantage of the coming boom in esports to this year where everyone is once again trying to figure out how to like position themselves <laughs> yeah. uh, for the, for this boom. Uh, we're about to have uh, you know Counter Strike broadcast on on Turner. Uh, we're, we're having now million dollar prize pool events. And it's it's interesting now to go back and look at this game, knowing what happened to the people in that story, uh, which is that you know to an extent their dreams didn't come true, uh, yeah. that, that that they were sort of headed for a fall that they couldn't quite see. Uh, but then also knowing that ten years later all of this would sort of happen again on a bigger scale, and that the thing that they're working toward. Uh, it's sort of, you, you get to sort of appreciate what they thought the future would look like. And now yeah. we're in the future and, and, we, and we know what shape it's taking. And it's interesting seeing, uh, the difference between expectations in 2005, 2006 and reality in 2016. That's very, very cool. I, I'm interested in, <laughs> this is why I listened, uh, to esports today, certainly also. I, I am interested in sort of, uh, knowing a little more about this world, uh, because I don't know anything about it. So. That sounds pretty red. I'm going to make mine super quick because I'm not actually done reading it, but I've begun reading Private Eye. It's sort of the deluxe edition of Private Eye. It's a graphic novel from Brian K. Vaughn, uh, art by Marcos Martin. And it is a really, really cool world. I'm, I'm God, I think I'm only actually about like 30% through. So again, uh, keeping this one quick. 
but it's actually this this really amazing world. It's like 60 years in the future in L.A. And the Internet sort of exploded and privacy doesn't uh, the Internet doesn't exist anymore. And privacy is this whole weird concept where everybody wears a mask everywhere they go and a, sort of a, a costume like a suit. Uh, and it's this bizarre, weird sort of semi cyberpunk, semi noir, semi cartoonish sort of garish world. Uh, where, you know, it's, it's basically there's a murder mystery going on and the main character is a private eye and sort of dealing with all these ideas of identity and who's who and who's doing what. And of course there's a conspiracy and there's somebody who wants to make the internet happen again, which is like, oh my God, the internet was the worst thing ever. Uh, my favorite character in it thus far is a guy. He's, he used to be a doctor. He's a millennial. He's, you know, you know, 20 or 30 right now in, in 2016 and he's, kind of an old man who's addicted to video games and has no attention span and all these other things. And it's kind of this cute, funny, you know, sort of, you know, a little commentary on sort of the world today. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's it's probably not my favorite uh, Brian K. Vaughn uh, graphic novel. Of course, I'm a big saga fan. So, you know, that's probably going to be my favorite for a long time. But I think it's it's well-written. It's smart. It's a lot of fun. The art is absolutely beautiful. It actually kind of reminds me of almost like a a sweeter um, transmetropolitan in a lot of ways. It, the art style sort of really sort of evokes that incredibly colorful 90s kind of uh, vibe going on. So I'm going to continue reading that, and I, I might even report back uh, and in a future weekend project about that as well. <laughs> Sounds All really right. cool. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty rad. I've been on, on quite a graphic novel kick. After I certified again as an EMT, I've been uh, reading lighter things since it was medical textbooks for, <laughs> for right. like four months and so now i'm like yeah i could use some some sort of flashy graphic novels this is good for my brain right now awesome uh so with that i think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends this episode of idle weekend was produced by chris remo and is hosted on the idle thumbs network if you are enjoying the show, folks, and we really, really appreciate, uh, excuse me, appreciate your listenership, uh, please do rate us on iTunes and please tell your friends, families, tell your dogs, tell your cats, whoever, whoever can listen. If they can, you know, click on that listen button, we really, really appreciate it. It means the world to us. And please do keep sending in those wonderful letters. We get the best letters, <laughs> kind of on any podcast I've ever been a part of. We get rad letters. Uh, you can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at idleweekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. The game that sort of jumps to mind when when I hear the story is, um, boy, I wish I could remember what that game was called. It's the zombie game. Uh, shit. There's a few of those. Yup, yup. It's this is not this is not good. Um, okay. uh, Walking Dead. No, it's it was an action game. Um, um. Oh, <laughs> it's 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 a third person open world. Uh, came out like two years ago. It it had sort of some strategy elements to it. Yeah, so you have to sort of look after a camp of uh, like a camp of survivors. Um, I think I know what you're talking about, and I can't think of it. Yeah, either. but now now it's now I gotta know. <laughs> now um, it's a problem. Okay, hold on here. I'm looking it up as well. It's like Dead Nation or something like that, or Zombie Nation oh. or. Um, Polygon reviewed it, and I remember Polygon reviewing it. I remember Arthur playing it, actually. State of Decay! That's it! God, alright. That was awesome. Uh, okay. Can I make a little note of that? Uh, also, while we're paused here, I think I rambled on that last letter. I think I might just ask Remo to cut that entire letter. Uh, oh, or, totally or at least cut my response, because I, I No, think no, no, was... I, don't, I don't think you... You rambled. I think we, we hit a lot of stuff, yeah. but I'm finding a way. Not sure about it. Anyway.